the War Nomads podcast. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous independent traveler. Hi there, wherever you may be listening in the world. Great that you've hooked into our podcast delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand, covering more than half a million travellers. I'm Kim and the man sitting across from me is... One of the half million, Phil. How are we all? Well, we're back. So I think episode one worked. I think so too. We've had some great feedback from everybody out there listening. So thank you very much for that. It was a great pleasure to know we weren't just talking into thin air, mate. Exactly. <laughs> that. Um, yeah, the feedback's been amazing. So thank you very much. And that podcast was about Croatia, which you can find on iTunes. Indeed. Please subscribe when you get there. Now, this one, though, this episode, we explore Canada. We'll catch up with Robin S. Rock. He's a travel writer and television host who's travelled to over 100 countries, including Canada. Chris Johns is one of Canada's most respected food and travel writers. And with Chris, we're going to look at Canada through a food lens, Phil, and ask, is it more than just maple syrup? Not that there's anything wrong with maple syrup. Not that there. And can you have <laughs> maple syrup with bacon? Yeah, it's actually not bad. Have you had it? I, yeah, I love I, it. I like it. I like it. I, I love it. Absolutely love it. Now, Mike Carter is a journalist who wrote a brilliant story on an Inuit-led adventure in Canada's far north. And you may remember in episode one, we promised you'd hear about his frightening toilet stop. <laughs> You're looking forward to that? I am. Plus Tour Radar, a World Nomads affiliate, and we announced the winner of the World Nomads Photography Scholarship. But next, he literally sat up all night coming up with this episode's travel quiz question. I think it arrived in my inbox at 11.03 p.m. <laughs> That's a long day, Phil. Phil, what are you going to throw at us? All right, here's my quiz question this week. If I was alongside Saxe Huaman, what would I be looking down on and what animal might I see? I'll have the answer at the end of the episode. Is that like sexy woman? Yeah, the sexy woman. Sexy woman. I like the accent. <laughs> okay, well, we're still working on intro music for this section, <laughs> but uh, now it is time for Ask Phil. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed. Uh, I really did embarrass myself last episode when you said, do you know everything? You do. And I said, um, yeah, and I came across a bit of a know-it-all. I know, I, honestly, I don't know anything. In fact, my knowledge about Canada has been improved about a 1,000% by just researching and preparing for this program, in part because I went to our uh, community, the Q&A forum called Ask a Nomad, and I looked for the Canada questions there. And this is the one that popped up because it had the most sort of answers with it. So yep. here we go. Jared said, and he's a world nomad, and he said, backpack Canada or not? Well, Timo replied, Canada is massive. It's best to pick an end, skip the middle and fly east-west or west-east. Even when you land, you'll need a car. Transportation between cities is crap <laughs> unless you want a Greyhound bus that stops 36 times for a five-hour trip. No, thanks. Uh, west Coast in summer is amazing. Ellen agreed with that. She said, check out the Sunshine Coast Trail, 180 kilometres of hut to hut hiking. Say that quickly. Also no, going from don't. <laughs> also going from Victoria to Tofino is a beauty. Checking out Cathedral Grove along the way, she said. Krista piped in with one of the most beautiful regions is the stretch from Jasper National Park west to Wells Grey National Park. On the other side of the country, anywhere in Cape Breton is a great place for backpacking. And Louise Armstrong, and I really hope that's her real name, <laughs> uh, she came up with this. I agree doing east-west and skipping as much of the middle, the prairies, as you need to. However, depending where you are, you may want to carry insect spray for black flies. I've heard they're a shocker there in summer. Aren't all flies black? 
Uh, these are a particular type one. Oh. They will take chunks out of you. Also, in spring, summer, you need to be aware of the bears that roam around certain parts, such as the Rockies, Jasper, Lake Louise and Banff, and even in ordinary-sounding places like close to Ottawa and the Quebec border. Ooh, scary. If you have a question, I think you can provide some answers. Check out answers.worldnomads.com and ask a nomad. Okay, while we're on a roll with places to visit in Canada, let's check in with Robin S. Rock, a travel writer and TV host who's travelled to over 100 countries searching for things you can't do anywhere else in the world. Firstly, I was curious to know about Canada's beaches. We've got beaches that stretch out forever and they're quite different from your kind of tropical white sandy squeaky beach uh, in the sense that they're a lot more rugged. Uh, So if you can imagine... Uh, say, Long Beach on Tofino in Vancouver Island, which faces the Pacific, and you're framed by these massive rain, coastal rainforest trees, eagles flying overhead. The storms that come in batter the coastline, so much so that storm watching is actually a popular pastime, and people come over to watch the storms roll in from the Pacific. So think less uh, babes and bikinis and more just nature in its absolute pristine rugged self it's the same with we have with the scuba diving Uh, we've got some of the world's best cold water diving here in british columbia and uh, people come from around the world and they can't get over how big everything is how pristine everything is it's a it's a different experience um but especially for people who are used to a certain type of environment. What about then, and you've written about the, the top 10 road trips, can you give us an example of one or two of those? Well, I think the Icefields Parkway, which is a stretch of road that um, rolls between Jasper National Park and Banff National Park, is mile for mile the most beautiful scenic drive anywhere in the world. And I only say that because I've been looking for <laughs> these kinds of things. And 110 countries, I've never seen such eye candy on display. It's just absolutely spectacular. And that's only a, uh, a three-hour drive. It's not a very long drive. And then we've got something uh, something quite different. I mean, there, there's incredible drives, and people come from around the world uh, to, to get this kind of remoteness in Canada. And probably the most remote one is called the Trans-Labrador Highway. So Labrador is a, uh, a part of a province that's attached to the mainland. Um, it's bigger than Japan. And Japan has 138 million people, and Labrador has about 30,000 people. And there's one road that goes through the whole mainland, just one road. Um, it's 1,185 kilometers long, and the, the government actually issues you a free loaner satellite phone because you're going to be that remote, and you're going to be driving in, in just absolute wilderness under the midnight sun, usually in summer. People are crazy to do it in winter. Um, and you just feel like you're the last great driver on earth. Well, actually, it's interesting that you mentioned Labrador because one of the chats we've had for this particular episode is with a Financial Times travel journal, Mike Carter, and he went on an Inuit-led adventure in that area and he just couldn't believe how remote it was. Yeah, it's a remoteness that you feel in your bones. <laughs> Whenever I think about Canada, I think I think snow, and I know it's so much more than that. So can you touch on, though, a couple of the winter festivals that would be attractive to travellers? Sure. So Ottawa um, 
is just gorgeous in winter. Uh, it's a it's a really fantastic city. I think, you know, you you get there and you feel like you're kind of in England with the old parliaments parliament buildings which look very very impressive and um, they have a festival called winterlude which is gorgeous uh, which is centered around the rideau canal so if you can imagine that you've got this waterway it's a unesco world heritage site that freezes over every winter and people skate to work because it goes through the whole city and people will it's quicker to just put on your skates with your briefcase <laughs> and your and your jacket and skate to work um the biggest winter carnival in the world is in uh, quebec city uh, it's called Carnival, Winter Carnival, and it is absolutely out of control. I mean, you go there, it's, temperatures can dip to about minus 20, minus 30, and they have street parades, they have parties in ice castles, um, they have the famous ice hotel, uh, everybody's walking around drinking this kind of, uh, kind of like a Louvine concoction made with rum and wine and vodka and god knows what else called called caribou so you you know everybody's quite plunked uh fantastic atmosphere very very festive and you know i've always said you can't do canada if you can't do cold you just bundle up and you dress for the elements and you just discover that you know if you can't go hiking in winter you can go snowshoeing um you know winter comes with with all the fun that comes with snow um and you just you just go with it and it's we love it. We absolutely love it. We will have a link to Robin's website in our show notes, which includes his blog, books and photos. Busy man. Yeah, he is. Mike Carter's story on his Inuit-led adventure to Canada's far north, as mentioned in that chat with Robin, is coming up. But next, let's check in and see what our world nomads have been up to. So we're traveling the world. It's amazing. It's the life. Come on. Yeah. The world is so nice, so big. Travel and enjoy the life. I've been to USA, Caribbean. Australia, uh, Asia, Fiji. You have to learn uh, so many things uh, from different cultures. It's beautiful. You can meet sometimes your family and your friends, but actually you just, you feel so satisfied here and you do whatever you want to do, so it's fine. You balance, just take a flight and go. You never know, you know. Mike Carter is a freelance journalist and it was last year he headed off to Canada's far north to experience an Inuit-led adventure. Canada's doing pretty well on the rankings of the most visited countries in the world. It's at number 17 at the moment, but it used to be at number two. As you can imagine, there's been a lot of discussion in Canada about why such a beautiful and diverse and exciting destination doesn't do better. And one theory is that, that they don't know what they've got. Canada's good at metropolitan cities and mounted police, but what the visitors want is a wilderness experience. And there's enormous interest from the rest of the world about wilderness experience led by Indigenous people. And Inuit adventure is what people want, apparently. And Mike has done one and written about it beautifully. He certainly has, Phil, but how did he end up in one of the most remote parts of the world? Well, as far as I'm aware, my, my newspaper um, emailed me and said um, there's this there's this extraordinary opportunity to, to, to do this trip in, in northern Labrador in the Torngat Mountains National Park, a very rarely visited, um, not only a very rarely visited part of Canada, but a very rarely visited part of the world. Um, and when I looked at the logistics involved in getting there, uh, you know, a flight to um, Halifax, I think it was, then another flight to Goose Bay, then another, and then another flight from Maine to Saglek, which is a, a landing strip left over for the U.S. Air Force, um, and then a Zodiac from that landing strip to um, to a camp, the only man-made structure in this entire 
um, nearly 4,000 square miles of pristine Arctic wilderness. It was too good an opportunity to turn down, just from just from kind of a logistical point of view. That's the kind of thing that really appeals to me. And then when they said it was it was kind of an Inuit-led initiative run by Inuit-owned companies. You, you know, lately it seems I don't, I don't know. I don't know about making plans about things. I, I love that kind of ancient Hebrew saying, give the gods a good laugh, tell them about your plans. But it does seem that in the last few years, these kind of stories have found me. My experience, very limited experience of Canada and the way it treats its indigenous people, it, it has been a very, very positive one. It seems to me, and I don't know because you're in and out of these places and you don't really know, but the, 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 a lot of the uh, infrastructure in, in Labrador seem to be owned by uh, Inuit companies like the airline and the barges that bring um, food up and down that coast to these remote communities and the base camp where I stayed and nine out of ten of the full-time staff in the camp were Inuit and that they want to make that a hundred percent and that probably is now and the guides were nearly all Inuit and I got the sense that the Canadian government are are, are doing as much as they can uh, in terms of reparation for, for the kind of for the for the for the catastrophes that were visited on indigenous people there in the 1950s um, when the forced relocations off their land in northern Labrador and down to alien settlements for them. But the pain of that is still very very evident when you speak to uh, Inuit there now. I think there's I, I think it's I think it's difficult. Um, this kind of cultural tourism, because you know, there's there's a mutuality, there's a, there's a there's a there's a there's a kind of symbiosis, there's a two-way learning process there. As long as there's absolute deep respect for for that host culture, and uh, and I think the the Anglo-Saxon world, the kind of English language-speaking world, we've been so guilty for so long with that kind of um, cultural imperialism when we go into into developing world countries. That, that this is rather sort of quaint, antiquated way of living that needs to be preserved in aspic, but we're much more superior, inherently superior and, and evolved than these people. But I do see a move, um, you, you know, people such as Jared Diamond, who are, you know, writing fabulous books like The World Until Yesterday, um, that um, look at... Um, the way traditional people organize themselves and, and see that we've, we've forgotten so much about how humans as a species organize and learn and thrive. You know, far from kind of cultural imperialism, I just see these people as, as, as a much better version of us, really, you know, in their respect for the land. And, um, so it's, it's simultaneously quite depressing, but very, very uplifting. Do you see Inuit developing an income stream from tourism in Canada? According to people I spoke to on the ground there, Inuit, yes. Um, and, I mean, the, the, the sense I got in Northern Labrador was, was, was that the Inuit there were increasingly getting more and more agency and more and more autonomy as to what they wanted to do and what they thought was acceptable, and that the Canadian government and, and the kind of Labrador government were, um, would, 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 were consultative and deeply respectful of... I mean, for a start, they own the land now, um, so my sense in Canada, anyway, is that they're doing tourism right, increasingly so, and um, and long may that continue. So, Philly hasn't yet told us why in his story he found it terrifying, and this relates to his toilet stop. Well, 
well, I think the, the very fact that your that your little playing lands and you're immediately surrounded by heavily armed men is, um, it, and you're actually in the middle of nowhere is a sure sign that something's rather worrying. <laughs> and um, and I we'd been in this little plane and and um, I, I kind of needed to go to the toilet and. Um, and I asked one of the guides, is there anywhere I could go? And there's, there are all these disused old Cold War hangars there. And they said, oh, you can go behind the building. Um, and, um, and he said, but I need to come with you, uh, with this huge gun, you know. Um, and, and he, and he was saying, you can't take your eye off the horizon or the landscape for a second there. Because the bears, not just the polar bears, but these barren ground black bears that have, that have adapted to survive there. They are ambush animals um, because they can't, because there is no trees, because it's above 55 degrees and there are no trees. There's no hiding place for them or very, you know, they're, they're traditional methods of stalking animals. So they have to hide behind a rock and uh, they're very opportunistic mm. and they're very patient. So, um, so I, you know, I, I wasn't terrified because I was with these extremely competent, highly trained people who know what to do, but... Um, you, you you quickly begin to realise that you're you're not in a benign, you know, you're not in your Sydney apartment, you're not in your kind of London apartment here. That this is, you, it, it really contextualises man's place in the grand scheme of things when um, you realise you're a kind of insignificant speck. As I said in the piece, you know, I'd gone from being a man to a snack. A really great opportunity to relieve yourself quickly, or just decide that you can <laughs> hang on. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it's not, so I don't, it wasn't terrifying. It's, it's just, it's that thing that, oh, okay, you know, I, I don't live here. This isn't, you know, this, I'm not familiar with this place. I'm quite helpless. You know, I, you look at these magnificent mountains and, and you see polar bears and black bears running everywhere. And then when you finally get to the camp, there's a 10,000 volt electric fence around the camp. Um, and, and you realize that this is not really a joke, you know, that you, you know, if you stray out and they, and, and one of the first things they do when you get to base camp in Saglek, um, field, uh, Saglek water is, um, they sit you down and show you a film of, um, of polar bears and, um, how to tell if a polar bear is, is, um, agitated, just merely curious or hungry. And you sort of studying all these different films of polar bears to try and judge their behavior and what you should do if a polar bear approaches you and what you should do to avoid encountering a polar bear. And, um, and that's the, literally the first thing they do when you get off the boat. You need to watch this film. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like getting on an airplane and going through the kind of safety talk by the cabin crew. Um, but, but the consequences being slightly more dire, really. Uh, Dad Jack Alert, uh, that brings a new meaning to the idea of a bear behind. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Links to Mike's story and more on him in our show notes. But look, Phil, don't feel too bad about your bear behind joke because... <laughs> I never do. No, I could certainly, I'm sure of it here, Chris Johns, who's one of Canada's most respected food and travel writers, groan when I asked him if Canada is more than maple syrup. 
Yeah, it absolutely is more than maple syrup. I mean, we're like the second largest country in the world, and um, the the bounty from our shores and from our fields and from uh, our forests is uh, almost unprecedented. We have an awful lot going on. I mean, every every region is has its own specialties. Um, here in Ontario, where I live, uh, you get a lot of great wine. We grow beautiful uh, tree fruits, and um, we have wonderful freshwater fish. Uh, we don't have an ocean, but uh, it's not far away. Speaking of areas, you wrote an article, Come for the Meat, Stay for the Veg, and you said yeah. a wave of green is taking over Montreal's eateries. Is that suggesting meat in that city has taken a, a back seat? No, I think there's a couple things going on there. Um, maybe five or ten years ago, Montreal was known as a very meat-centric kind of city, and it was gaining an international reputation as such. You had restaurants like uh, Joe Beef and Opied Gauchon who were doing things like Jack in a Can and uh, the infamous Foie Gras Double Down, which was uh, two-breaded chicken breasts, fried chicken breasts with, like, ham and cheese in the middle. Well, yeah. the guys at Joe, <laughs> kind of, kind of, I guess, the guys at Joe Beef um, uh, did the equivalent, but put used uh, whole lobes of foie gras and deep fried them, and and then put ham and cheese in the middle. So that's about as meaty a thing as you can get. And that was kind of the whole, that was the whole reputation of Montreal is this excessive place to go and eat until you nearly passed out and drink just as much. Um, but yeah, in the last uh, couple of years. A new wave of restaurants uh, like Vin Papillon has come along, and the emphasis is on a much lighter style of eating. I think that Canadians are really starting to wake up to um, just the like the quality of the products and the talent um, uh, of the chefs who are working and living here. You know, people travel a lot. Canadians travel quite widely, so they're coming back with with um, with new ideas and with uh, raised expectations. And I think that that's all feeding into this 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 revolution that that, that that's happening and this raising of the bar of um, dining across the country. So, what ingredients inspire Canadian dishes? Then, I, I, I guess something that would be considered as especially Canadian might be our use of game. Um, you don't see a lot of it on restaurant menus because outside of Newfoundland, you're not really allowed to serve uh, a moose that somebody brought in for you uh, from from the field. We'd like to see that change, actually, but um, for now. Uh, you have to kind of get farm-raised game. Um, we, of course, have the full full complement of four seasons, so um, seasonality is very important. I was recently on a ferry and overheard some Canadians saying that they have the best sushi outside of Japan. Is that true, or were they waxing lyrical? Well, I think you could make that case, yeah, uh, especially on the West Coast. Um, the restaurants in Vancouver and a little uh, uh, bedroom community of Richmond, British Columbia, have phenomenal Asian restaurants, not just Japanese, but like the Chinese restaurants in, in Richmond in particular are as good as, if not better than, um, what you would find uh, in Beijing or Shanghai. The sushi is uh, is is phenomenal. Finally, yeah. what can travellers expect from Canadian food, you know, particularly with World Nomads, the independent traveller that's not particularly attracted to the high-end restaurants? Uh, I would like to think that um, in Toronto, at least, you could absolutely have a, a great trip and uh, never have to spend more than, you know, a 20. 
and, and feed yourself very well at a, at, a, at a whole bunch of good restaurants. Certainly in Chinatown, there's a, a million amazing places, uh, all kinds of burger joints that are out of control good. And pizza is a big thing here right now. Um, and on the West Coast, like we said, sushi, it's not all high-end sushi out there. Um, even the even the sort of entry-level uh, sushi places tend to be a, operating at a very high level. And out on the East Coast, you know, find yourself like a, a Sunday church uh, lobster bake and, and, and get get in there. Um, they're not expensive and delicious food and amazing, amazing experience. We will have a link to Chris's book, True North Canadian Cooking, from coast to coast in our show notes. Now meet Christian Walters from Tour Radar. They're a bunch of techie travel experts. They're on a mission to enrich people's lives through touring. And Christian is part of the team and he shares with us his love of travelling and his obsession. Believe it or not, he is obsessed with sailing. I tried out my French on him, Phil, with a little bonjour to kick off the Skype chat. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually uh, a Quebecer, but I've, I've lived in Toronto probably... I would say over 20 years, so I'm, I'm more English than French now. <laughs> so is Quebec that different from the rest of Canada? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, it's uh, completely French. Uh, they have French language laws, uh, Francophone history, culture, um, and it's unique uh, in all of Canada. Wow. And you get Celine Dion. And we get Celine Dion as well. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, why do you love travel and how did you get the travel bug? Um, not too sure exactly. I mean, I know I've, uh, my parents are both from Europe and they emigrated here and they've always enjoyed traveling. I, I remember from a, a young age, uh, seeing pictures of them in Nigeria. Uh, my dad used to work there for over a year and my mom was very open to, uh, different cultures and, um, taught me the same. And, uh, we went on a couple of family trips to, to Europe when I was little. Um, from there, um, I guess it just, uh, just, kept wanting to travel and you've got a love of sailing particularly yeah i've loved sailing um ever since i was a little kid um i'm not sure why both my parents don't sail and um it was just something that i enjoyed reading the stories when i was a little kid uh but growing in quebec it was you know you're pretty landlocked uh, sure there's a big river but there's not a lot of sailing going on and then when i moved to toronto i was pretty excited um because i was um on the banks of uh, lake ontario which has um ocean like conditions uh, so i learned to um sail smaller boats and then bigger boats and then eventually i've uh, i acquired my own boat 3 years ago which is about 30 four feet in length and I've got this um, big plan to sail around the world so I'm working towards that objective right now um, I've been on a few international trips like I've uh, sailed in Croatia the British Virgin Islands and uh, in Burma as well um, I love exploring new cultures new places that I haven't been to I'm not a big fan of going to the same places even though I've pretty well figured those places out so well that I should probably go back but I, I definitely like to go somewhere you. Um, if it's an activity uh, outside of sailing, I love mountain biking um, and doing something physical because I just feel like it's a more rewarding experience at the end of it all. So you're an avid traveller and adventurer. How does that fit with what you do for work and the way Tour Radar sees the world? 
Oh, it works perfectly. Um, so with Tour Radar, we aggregate multi-day tours. Um, we we are the marketplace for um, literally hundreds of different tour operators around the world. We have a 15,000 different tours currently right now, and people can uh, jump on board and search and find the best tour that they want and book it right on the platform. We've got 24-7 customer support. Um, so how it fits in really is that um, there's such a variety and uh, um, I like traveling in many different ways. Um, there's sometimes that I like to travel luxuriously. But others I like to go budget, um, high active. Sometimes I just want to relax. Um, so it gives me a great opportunity to explore different types of operators, different ways of traveling in different countries to travel in. Thanks, Christian. We'll have links to Tour Radar in our show notes. But now to our live, he's living, breathing studio guest, Phil, you do the honours. Okay. Well, last week we announced the winner of the World Nomads 2017 Photography Scholarship. I'm very pleased to announce that we'll be sending Kelly Bechter to Myanmar next year. Kelly's a Canadian nurse presently living in London, but she's been to over 100 countries. Good honour. For those who haven't heard of our scholarship programs, we offer Money Can't Buy Experiences for Emerging Photographers, Writers and Filmmakers. Travellers who want to make their passion their profession, you've heard us say that. And they could use a little help, advice and tutoring from a professional to make that happen. So we organise that for them, sending them on a real assignment with a mentor, someone who is a professional and expert in the field. For the Photography Scholarship, we're incredibly lucky to have the services of one of the world's best travel photographers. He's a Canon master and we're thrilled to say he's in the studio with us now, Richard Iansen. Welcome. Thank you very much, Phil. I couldn't believe it when you stepped into our office and you were signing autographs. And I said to Phil, is he signing autographs? <laughs> Phil said, yeah. I said, is, is he a big deal? Phil says, yep. So we're really honoured that you've taken the time to come into the studio. It's my pleasure. I'm not that big a deal. I signed one autograph. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there are 300 other people in the office. It was impressive. I've already done them. No. <laughs> hey, first of all, can we talk about the winner, Kelly, Kelly yes. Bechter? Um, what was it you liked about her entry? There's a lot of different thought and thinking that goes into selecting an entry from, from obviously, you know, the 4,000 submissions that we had. So there's never one thing. And that's I think that's the point of the scholarship opportunity, that we are looking at various angles. It's not just the photography. It's not just the written words that accompany it. It's a combination. And then finally, when, when we get a... a a really tight shortlist, you know, they get interviewed. Yeah. So obviously these entrants have the ability to take photos. Where do you step in? They have the ability to take photos, but if you look at the submissions, the standard varies enormously. And, of course, professional photographers are not allowed to enter. So the opportunity should be entered by aspiring photographers, is probably the best way yeah. to put it. So... Um, I think, well, I came in on various levels. One, one thing I'm able to do, because I've been in this business so long, is work with the person wherever they're at. So even if they are quite competent, um, I can help them go to the next step. And if they're a beginner, well, and that can happen in this competition, you can still get through, uh, even if you've only just started taking pictures. I can work with them at whatever level to help them go to the next step. 
when, once they join me on the ground, they get to see what it's really like to be a professional travel photographer. So it's a pretty intense 10, 12 days. Now, I know we're talking <laughs> about a different level of photography here, but if, if we just touched on, you know, the iPhone, people travel with it, they can take reasonable photos with it. There are lots of applica- well, not applications, but um, pieces of, literally pieces of equipment that you can attach to enhance your photos. For somebody that's, you know, an amateur that just wants to take a few snaps to look back on in life is is that okay i think it, it's absolutely fine with the accessories that you can add to an iphone or a smartphone to improve the quality i think you have to understand you're actually usually then dealing with someone who is a bit more serious you know they're spending money and they're, they're trying to get the best out of the equipment most people of course just shoot straight from with the with the lens and the camera and the card that's provided um and look it's absolutely they're absolutely fine for recording your memories and they look pictures can look great on the phone itself and they can look great on a screen okay but you can't possibly compare the files to what you get out of a certainly a professional dslr um how do you feel about the selfie stick (laughs) (laughs) can't stand them no good (laughs) but but I have reasons. Yeah. It's because they take up too much space. I find that they quite often get in my way. Is there such a thing as, you know, having an eye? Oh, absolutely, I think there is such a thing as having an eye. It doesn't mean that you can't develop it and learn, but it is one of those tricky ones. I always say you can always learn the technical stuff. You know, that is totally learnable and people should make an effort to learn it so that it becomes second nature because then you can concentrate on the good stuff, which is taking pictures. But... You can learn about composition, but I think, you know, I think probably the best photographers do have some sort of innate eye. Well, you're a pretty good photographer. What's your favourite photo that you've ever taken? I'm pleased to say I've got more than one. (laughs) Good. (laughs) (laughs) Told you you were pretty Uh, good. The favourite photo comes and goes. I mean, I would like to think I've got a few more favourite photos in the future. Um, And they become favourite photos for different reasons. The the current favourite is is a shot I took at the Holi Festival in India where I was in, in amongst the crowd and the water and the powder was being thrown everywhere and I, and I took essentially a portrait of a woman just peering out from behind her sari which she had over her head to cover cover herself for protection. That's my current favourite. Phil's favourite at the moment is his family snorkelling. Yes, I know. It was, yeah, <laughs> and it was a good photo, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it's a nice photo. Very okay, nice. if anyone wanted to, and clearly they will want to view your work, can you direct us to a, a particular website or even an exhibition perhaps? Uh, well, my website exists and that's got some galleries on it and I'm reasonably active on Instagram. Under the name of? Rich Ianson. Well, we look forward to seeing the work that you uh, will produce with Kelly. And thanks for being our second live studio guest. That's right. And best of luck. Uh, I hope the scholarship goes well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, Phil, what travel news do you have for us this episode? All right. Here's a good one. A British traveller who was jailed in Dubai for touching another man's hip in a bar has been freed by a royal pardon and will return home, escaping a three-month jail term. Jamie Harron claimed he touched the other man to prevent him spilling his drink. But the man claimed Harron was drunk and no-no in the United 
Arab Emirates and repeatedly touched him. Also a no-no. Haram was sentenced to um, – he was sentenced for public indecency and was facing other charges for being drunk and swearing. Normal rules do not apply when you're in Dubai. It's not a normal night out at the park. Please be careful <laughs> I'd there, be jailed. Okay? I'm aware of it. <laughs> uh, look, Lonely Planets released its list of top 10 cities to visit in 2018. Yes, we're at that time of the year already, the next year we're looking at. Top of the list is in English, Seville, Spain. In Spanish, Sevilla in Spain. The reasons, it's got great street life, and I can attest to that. Uh, an amazing love of art, and there's this unique mix of medieval and Moorish architecture. Plus, yep, you guessed it, some scenes from Game of Thrones were shot there. Uh, the next two places on the list are a bit of a surprise, even for the people who live there. Detroit, USA. Yeah, it's making a big comeback. Is it? I, because I yeah. felt like it was a ghost town. No, it would get very nearly bankrupt, what, three, four, five years ago. It's actually making a great comeback and it's somewhere now uh, where a sort of, you know, hipster community has set up and it's really starting to thrive. It's great amazing. News. Um, not quite sure. Uh, apparently the same is true with the number three on the list, although I find this one hard to believe. <laughs> Canberra. Australia. Uh, for people not from Australia, Canberra is our capital city, uh, not Sydney, uh, and it's kind of inland halfway between Sydney and Melbourne, and it used to be, and probably should still be, a sheep paddock. Well, yes, that's very true. <laughs> I did visit Canberra recently, though, and learned that its name, the name Canberra, comes from the bit between a woman's breasts. Okay, Which because, never... because naming it decolletage <laughs> yeah, well, was not well, going to work. That's the top bit. This, oh, right. I always thought this bit was cleavage. <laughs> so Canberra cleavage, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's actually, yeah, it's where all our politicians live, right? Exactly. I think it's the cleavage that's behind you and a bit lower, isn't it? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. the, that's Canberra. The arse crack of Australia. <laughs> anyway, okay. <laughs> all right, uh, well, Share the full list on the show notes for you, but it's good to see that San Juan in Puerto Rico came in at number eight. They deserve it after all the sure. hammering they got from the hurricanes this year. Another boon for the hurricane-affected Caribbean, Love Festival Aruba kicks off on November 1st. Expect five days and nights of throbbing techno music amid crystal clear waters of the Dutch Caribbean. If you can pull yourself away from the parties and the DJs, the island's actually a really interesting place, so a rich cultural mix of Dutch, Portuguese and Caribbean influences. It's just that I'm expecting several thousand party goers all dressed as Captain Jack Sparrow. I don't know. About <laughs> I can you. see that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Golden Week in China at the beginning of October, just gone past, set new records for domestic holiday travel with, wait for it, 710 million Chinese hitting the road during the week long holiday. That's half a billion people. 710 million all hitting the road. Yeah, all in the same week. They don't really get, you know, um, public holidays. So they get this one week, that and Chinese New Year. So everybody's on the road. Just note to Americans whinging about Thanksgiving. Yeah. Have a look what happens in China. 710 million. Unbelievable. That's a anyway, it coincided with autumn festivals this year, so there was an extra incentive to get away from it all with 709,999,999 of your best friends. <laughs> The picture of the crowds on the Great Wall has to be seen to be be believed. Check it out. We'll put it on the show notes. Worldnomads.com forward slash podcasts. Look for episode two. Final bit of good news. Two months after Hurricane Harvey caused all that damage, 
Houston is open for business. The Space Centre, the Fine Art Museum and the Natural History Museum are all open. So are most of the city's hotels and restaurants. So y'all get down to Houston now. So you, Houston really did have a problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, where's that groan music again? <laughs> we, we can find it. Well, time to wrap up Episode 2 of the World Nomads podcast and we've got to do that with the answer to Phil's quiz question. Just remind us. Uh, if I was alongside Saksehu, woman, what would I be looking down on and what animal might I see? Saxe Huaman is the ancient Inca fortress that stands above Cusco in Peru. From the lookout in the streets of the old part of the city, because it's got about four times bigger in the last decade, you can see the shape of a puma. In fact, Saxe Huaman forms the head of the animal. In Incan mythology, there's a, you know, a trinity of gods being the yep. puma, the condor and the snake, representing the underworld, the world and the higher plane where the gods exist. If you don't believe me, have a look at the map we've uploaded on the show notes page. You can actually see the shape of a puma. And if anyone's got a tat of that... I would love to see a photo. Absolutely. That's a tat waiting to happen. Podcast at worldnomads.com. Search for the World Nomads podcast in iTunes, Stitcher and your favourite podcast players. Subscribe to us, rate us, share us. Get in touch via email at podcast.worldnomads.com. Next episode... That's another dad joke. I'm sorry. Hold on to your hat. We're off to Panama. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.